true if the dead are not raised. Did I tell you this already? If the dead are not raised, neither has Christ himself been raised. Surely I forgot to tell you, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is not even worth the space that it fills. Your sins are still accusing you. And our dear brothers and sisters who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And that leaves you in your present pitiful lives. If you think that is the life, that this life is all that Christ cares about, I don't know what to tell you. You would be better off if you had never known Christ. End of quote. I don't think you've ever heard this amplified translation of the Bible because for good reason, I was the amplifier in this case. <laughs> it's hard to believe, but I used to not like this passage at all. Uh, the first time I read this passage seriously, I expected Paul to dazzle me with his powers of intellect. I was very disappointed. If you look at the passage carefully, there isn't an ounce of argumentation in it. He's not even trying to engage our brains. He's just hammering a couple of propositions. And when he's done doing that, he hammers them again and then again, like he's trying to train his dog. And funny, uh, the work of time, because now that passage has become perhaps a favorite of mine. It certainly has a lot of personality. Uh, for eight verses, Paul is going ballistic and the Corinthians are getting thrashed. Uh, it would be hilarious if it weren't so dead serious. Something triggered Paul very badly. What is it? When I get stuck on a passage I'm reading, uh, my wife always reminds me, read on, keep reading. And that's so true. If I keep reading past verse 19, then the atmosphere changes. The tension drops. And then I meet again the Paul that I know the Paul who is thoughtful and reasons out with you. But Paul couldn't start out that way. He was contending with some Corinthians who would not, who refused to understand the very first thing about the resurrection. So Paul had to nail it this time. Otherwise he'd be wasting his time all over again. And what is it that he was so desperately trying to nail? Well, quite simple, the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of the dead go hand in hand, peas in a pod, joined at the hip, hand in glove, inseparable. You wouldn't dare talk about the resurrection of the dead without making a reference to the resurrection of Christ, would you? Well, it goes the other way too. How dare we believe in the risen Christ and ignore the resurrection of the dead, says Paul. And yet, I don't know about you, how many Easter sermons have I heard where there wasn't even a peep about the resurrection of the dead? And maybe that was not the intention, but after a while, you get the impression that the resurrection of the dead has gone the way of the dodo bird. So I read Paul in 1 Corinthians. Sometimes I find him a little scary. He seems dead serious about it. So uh, just in case he's listening, I'm going to make sure that I don't let you go today without having given 
the resurrection of the dead its due. Momentary confusion. Ah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Justification number two of topic, the Nicene Creed. We literally read it a few minutes ago. And this is what it says. We said it together. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And this is a perfect time to warn parents. Parents, anybody here has a spiritually gifted child? Uh, if so, don't be surprised if that child comes running to you one day in a panic. Mom, Dad, have you heard? They lost the resurrection of the dead. It says so right here in the Nicene Creed. And we're still looking for it. Uh, parents, you'll have to explain that this is not the sense. Uh, here, uh, I found a modern translation of the Nicene Creed from a Catholic website. It says this, we look forward to the resurrection of the dead. I also saw the Samuel Noble translation of the Creed, Samuel Noble, uh, you don't know him? Well, I don't know him either. Anyways, it goes like this, we hope for the resurrection of the dead. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is the orthodox teaching on the resurrection of the dead. It is a future prophesied event that Christians anticipate with joy. It's not something that happens to us right after we die. And uh, my bottom line is always biblical faithfulness. I guess I'm a good Protestant that way. But when it comes to the resurrection of the dead, I have to give the Nicene Creed two thumbs up. Actually, if you don't hold to an orthodox understanding of the resurrection of the dead, I'm afraid that you're going to find lots, many parts of your Bible quite impossible to understand. Yes, justification number three. Well, maybe your kid was right after all. Have we, are we in danger of losing the resurrection of the dead? It's a very sad thing to say, but in North America, possibly a majority of Christians don't have an orthodox understanding of the resurrection of the dead. Consequently, they're not quite sure why it matters. So generally speaking, they prefer to stay safe and not mention it at all from the pulpit. The doctrine seems to be constantly under attack, it seems. In uh, 2 Timothy, try that. Oh, we have it right here. Um, 2 Timothy, Paul was complaining about two fellows, Hymenaeus and, and Philetus, because they had swerved from the truth. Now, what was that all about? Had they started questioning, perhaps, the resurrection of Jesus? No. They were saying that the resurrection of the dead had already happened. And as we know now, some Corinthians also were saying that the resurrection of the dead was not even a thing. But Paul was pulling his hair. So those are my justifications, and hopefully now you're all on board.
To help you understand why the resurrection of the dead is so cool, because I think it is, I have to tell you what Jesus said about the dead, and, and shortly we will get into matters of interpretation. But for now, I just want to convey the undisputable fact that Jesus compared death to sleep. We know of two times that he did it, and the practice was not completely new, but Jesus sure gave it a new twist. But let's start with the Old Testament. Work this time. Psalm 13, 3. David talks about sleeping the sleep of death. Okay, nobody wonders what it is David was talking about. Clear enough. In 1 Kings 2.10, it says that David slept with his fathers and was buried, and everybody understands that David died. Clear enough. But Jesus did not talk about death so plainly. He was in the habit of saying, so-and-so has fallen asleep. Period. End of sentence. Absence of qualifiers. That really threw people off. Because nobody had ever talked about death quite in this way before. Do you remember the daughter of uh, Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue? Jesus said, go away. The girl's not dead, but sleeping. And Luke reports that they laughed at Jesus because they knew, obviously, the girl was dead. And then it was Lazarus. Jesus said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. When the disciples started asking questions, well, Jesus put it point blank, Lazarus is dead. But you know what remarkable thing happened? After Jesus' death and resurrection, those same disciples who had been so puzzled by Jesus' figure of speech, they all started to use themselves the same figure of speech. I'll give you examples. I'm not kidding. Matthew, one of the apostles, in the gospel of the same name, he wrote this, the tombs were opened. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city, etc. If Matthew is not enough, how about Luke, the evangelist? He also wrote the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, he said this about evangelist Stephen. As they were stoning Stephen, etc., uh, Stephen called out. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So we have Matthew and Luke. Do we need more? How about Paul? Apostle to the Gentiles. All right. I forgot to turn for Luke. Here's Paul, apostle to the Gentiles. In Antioch of Pisidia, he gave a speech. He talked about David. And you know, he could have said what the Old Testament says, quite simply, that David slept with his fathers. But no, he said, for David fell asleep. A break with the tradition. And Paul relapses four times in 1 Corinthians 15, and he relapses three times in 1 Thessalonians 4. Next, if Paul isn't enough, here's the killer. I think I went too far. And I'm fighting with Scott now, I think. <laughs> Number four. Thank you. Maybe it's just as well. Hey, Peter, the chief apostle. In his second letter, he quotes the scoffers 
who would come in the last days. And he says, they will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, he caught the bug as well. They all say it in imitation of their Lord. It's funny, we have such a role of distinguished saints who imitated Jesus in the way that he referred to the dead, but we haven't followed suit. Jesus' own figure of speech was good enough for the apostles, it was good enough for the evangelists, but apparently it was not good enough for us Anglicans, and I suspect sometimes our theology is standing in the way. I can only remember one person speaking of death as sleep, and you'll never guess who. It was our former pastor at the funeral of Vina Sweetman, who many of you might remember. Trevor, our former pastor, said very solemnly, Vina has fallen asleep. And I heard him say it twice, and I almost wanted to clap. But I also meant to ask Trevor, where, does that, where, where did that come from? Because it's not something we normally hear. My theory now is that it was one of Vina's parting wishes. So now the real question. Okay, I'm getting serious now. Why does the New Testament refer to the dead as having fallen asleep? Obviously, it's a comparison. And the problem with comparisons is that they always break down at some point. Uh, it's like the fellow who comes back from a hard day's work, exhausted, can hardly stand up on his two feet. And I say to him, you're like a bicycle. And he said, what do you mean I'm like a bicycle? And I say, yeah, duh, you're too tired. So was the fellow like a bicycle? Yes, he was in that particular respect. But I could also give you hundreds of reasons that the guy was not like a bicycle. Okay, so that particular comparison did not go much further than a joke. But you sense that when Jesus compared death with sleep, he meant for his comparison to carry a little bit further. But how far? And that's where reasonable people can differ. I'll take, for example, two fathers of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, big name, and another big name, John Calvin. Did you know? That these two characters quite disagreed about what to make of Jesus' uh, figure of speech. But they were up to the same thing. They were both trying to figure out how far the comparison between death and sleep could reasonably be taken. So I say that the two men should get along. They should go to the bar and have a beer. And they might bicker a little bit. Calvin might say, my very dear Martin, you ought to know how convinced I remain that you are making entirely too much of Jesus' figure of speech. And Luther might counter, Johnny, my old friend on the contrary, I believe you are approaching Jesus' figure of speech with nowhere near the seriousness that it deserves. And I would like to think they would drink to each other's health. So where, where do I stand? Am I with Luther or Calvin? Not going to tell you, but I have to tell you something, right? So let me just say this. When I fell asleep last night, it was in the hope of waking up this morning. We have to wake up. If we were not sure of waking up the next morning, we would be terrified of even lying down. 
And I believe that's the whole point of the comparison, the state, the state of death from which we will be resurrected, whatever it is, it is not the eternal salvation that God has prepared for us. It is meant to stop. We have to be awakened from it. So the resurrection of the dead really is a big deal. Let me take you to Acts 4. Thank you. So Peter and John were speaking to the people, and the religious authorities were, I quote, they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming the gospel. Proclaiming, yes, the gospel, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Did you ever think of the resurrection of the dead as being so fundamental that it could constitute the central plank of one's proclamation of the gospel? Did any of us ever proclaim in Jesus the resurrection of the dead? We will leave the final word to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 24, Scott. Oh, this works so much better. So for me, these might be just the most monumental verses of the entire Bible. That's my bias. I just love it. It says in verse 20, Christ was the first to be raised from the dead, like the very first ear of grain at the beginning of the harvest. And we don't count Lazarus and others like him because those resurrections were demonstrations of the real thing to come. In verse 21, we have a statement of the problem and God's solution to the problem. The problem is a man brought sin and death into the world. Likewise, the solution was that another man should bring into the world the solution, the forgiveness of sin and the resurrection from the dead. In verse 22, those two men are identified. It's because of the first man, Adam, that everyone dies, even Vina, sweet man, bless her. But it is because of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, that everyone will live again, even Joseph Stalin. In verse 23, we learn that the resurrections will happen in orderly fashion like anything God does. We have a brief flashback to Christ when he was raised as the very first. Then we jump to the second coming of Christ, when those who belong to Christ will be resurrected in glory. In verse 24, I believe there is an indirect reference to the rest of the dead, but this is beyond the scope of my sermon. But I'll just say one thing, though, I can't resist. In Acts 24, 15. Cool. Paul was in court. He was defending himself against the accusing Pharisees. And he said this, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust, and the men he was pointing at were the Pharisees who were accusing him in court. And Paul said he had the same hope in God as those Pharisees, which is that there would be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And did you notice Paul sees hope apparently in both 
resurrections. And that is as controversial as I will ever get in this sermon. I will conclude with an interesting picture. Don't laugh. A little fuzzy. Sleeping Beauty. I, I don't propose that we start using fairy tales to demonstrate doctrinal points, but I think it really illustrates my point. As you might know, a princess, a princess is cursed by an evil fairy so that she falls into a deep sleep, a deep, a sleep that can only be broken by the kiss of true love. There's also a handsome prince who defeats the evil fairy and gives the princess the kiss of true love that breaks the spell and awakens her. And I think the parallels here are simply unbelievable for an innocent little fairy tale. The princess is the church. The church mostly, in large part, made up of believers who have lived and died, fallen asleep through the ages and are awaiting their resurrection at the coming of Christ. As you see, got that, the princess is beautiful. She is safe. She is preserved. She is not suffering. She is certainly peaceful and at rest. She is all of those things, but as long as she is sleeping, she is of no use to herself, no use to anybody around her, and certainly of no use to the king. She has to be awakened. And the prince is Christ. He had to defeat the devil in epic battle. And he loves the church to death. And I mean it in more sense than one. And when Christ returns, he will give the sleeping church the kiss of true love. And we will awake and see face to face the one who loved us so much. And happy Easter.